to the Lord. Amen. Well, so thank you for the invitation to return and for the welcome here. I think it was just about around this time last year when I was with you for a similar period, three weeks, and we look forward in God's will to the the next three weeks together as well. So lovely to be with you. We're going to generally think about the theme of worship during these next few Sunday mornings. And what better place to start in the Scriptures than in John chapter 4, John's Gospel chapter 4. And we'll read a few verses, beginning at verse 19. The previous verses tell us, of course, about the encounter of the Samaritan woman with Jesus around that well in Sychar. And Jesus reveals many things to her, indeed, indeed, precious things, not only about her own need of Him, her own need of salvation, but things about worship that He hadn't even expressed to His own disciples as yet. So we take up the reading at verse 19 of John chapter 4. John 4, verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that it is Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for. Salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. And we'll end the reading just there. And we know that God will bless His Word to our hearts today, just by uh, way of coincidence, perhaps, or by way of divine arrangement. When I opened uh, up the internet this morning to do a little online devotion, which I do, along with others, of course, just this little one online. It was based on this very text, John chapter 4, and Jesus' words about worship. And then when I was driving from my home outside Lurgan along to uh, Monaghan this morning, I was listening to a, a, a church service broadcast on Radio Ulster, and the service began with these very same words from John chapter 4. So whether that's coincidence or whether that's divine confirmation, I'll leave you to judge. One thing there's no doubt about. There is no doubt what God wants you and me to be. There is no doubt what God would have us to be. And Jesus tells us very clearly what that is here in John chapter 4, particularly 
in verses 23 and 24, the last two verses we read. And you see it too in the creation story. When God made Adam and Eve, He made them to be worshipers. And that's what Jesus is expressing again in John chapter 4, that God has made you and God has made me. And indeed, God has recreated you and me through the power of the new birth, that we might be true worshipers of the one true God. Adam and Eve were made to reflect the glory of God upon the earth. Many people today philosophically ask the questions, who am I? And why am I here? And there is really only one answer to those questions. And it's this, I am to be a worshiper of God. I am here to be a worshiper of God. And if I am not a worshiper of God, if I am not a worshiper of the one true God, then I am not fulfilling my destiny. This is my highest and occupation and my highest purpose in life, to be a worshiper of God. The shorter catechism of the Presbyterian Church uh, asks the question, what is man's chief end? And the answer to the question is, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Adam and Eve failed in this miserably, of course. They did not go with their nature, which was to worship God. When they sinned, they went against their nature. They were created to be natural worshipers of the Lord. But their fall into sin resulted in the warping of their nature. Now, the inclination to worship remains within the human heart and within the human nature. But it is a warped inclination. It is a warped nature. The history of mankind and even the history of God's own people illustrates how worship became warped with the fall. Because it was now not only directed to God, and even when it was, it was more often than not unacceptable, but man began to worship other gods, and man began to worship other idols, and man began to create his own gods, and man began to worship himself. And when Jesus came and declared that God was seeking true worshipers to worship him in spirit and in truth, he was redirecting men to the purpose for which they were created. We failed miserably in that, of course, like Adam 
and Eve. Let it not be the case that we who have been born again are failing him too. Let's learn as Jesus instructs us to worship him in spirit, to worship him spiritually, and to worship him in truth. That is to worship him sincerely. Now, some understand worship to be merely the singing of hymns and, and the saying of prayers and the, the order or the liturgy that we follow in a particular service. And we in Pentecostal circles uh, have our own liturgies as well as other churches. But the biblical description of worship goes much deeper than that. Certainly, yes, the singing of songs and the reading of the Word and the saying of prayers and the various elements that we place into the Christian worship service are all legitimate, but they must take us further and they must take us deeper. And again, there are some who see worship as that which can only take place in a building designated for the purpose, or in a location specially, again, designated for that purpose. And that was the mistake this Samaritan woman made when she said, our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you say that Jerusalem is the place to worship. She had it in her mind that worship was something indulged in in a particular geographical location. But the Bible does not center worship on a material structure or a geographical location. The Bible centers worship right here in the human heart and in the human spirit. Worship is both a singular activity. I may engage in worship when I am alone, but it is also, of course, a plural activity. It is an exercise we do both personally and corporately, and that's what we'll seek to address over these next couple of weeks as the Lord allows us. As we see from Scripture, worship includes surrender, it includes service, it includes ministry, and we see that in the very words used for worship in the Scriptures. The most usual word in the New Testament is the word proskuneo, and it's the word that Jesus uses here in John chapter 4 uh, for worship, proskuneo or proskuneo, because that pronunciation gives us a little bit of understanding of what this word means, proskuneo. It means to prostrate ourselves. It means literally the, the falling of our, on our knees, the falling on our knees before a higher being. And so the, the thrust of worship then from 
a, a definition of this word is that of adoration coupled with prostration. That is the bowing down, the surrender of the adoring heart. It is not necessarily physical posture that is in mind here. Not so much the bowing of the knees or the bowing of the physical body, but it is the bowing of my will to God. It is the bowing of my heart to God. It is the bowing of my life to God. It is the acknowledgement of the greatness and the holiness and the overallness of God. Something we've lost a concept, a vision of, I believe, in so many parts of the Christian world today, where we tend to reduce God as much as we can down to our level. We fail to see the overallness of God, the greatness, the fullness that He fills all things, that there is none beside Him, there is none like him, that he alone is God and he alone does wondrous things. And we need to recapture that, that image, that vision, that conception of the overallness of God. This word then suggests that we bow to God, that we bend to God. We bend our nature, we bend our own will, which can be stubborn and strong and very self-centered at times. It speaks of our attitude. It speaks of our lifestyle. And it speaks of our sheer awe of God. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 3, Paul uses another word for worship. He speaks of worshiping God. We who are circumcised, worshiping God and worshiping God the Father through Jesus Christ, His Son. And when I use the word circumcised, I'm repeating the word Paul uses, but Paul uses it not in the sense of a physical operation, which circumcision was in the Old Testament understanding of the word, but when Paul uses the word circumcision and says we are of the, the circumcision, he speaks of the, the spiritual operation, that spiritual operation that has taken place in, in your life and in my life, uh, the, the, the miracle of the new birth, the, the forgiving of our sins, the cleansing of our being, that spiritual miracle, miracle that has made us, that spiritual operation that has made us a new creature in Christ. And he shows there it is our duty, it is our responsibility to worship God. And the word that he uses there is the word that suggests corporate or sanctuary worship, the word latrius. And it literally means service. So we're getting an understanding of, of all that's involved in, in worship. It is first my, my personal acknowledgement of the greatness of God through the, the prostration of my soul, my life, my will, my all before him. 
And then it is the act of serving him, of ministering in his name, of reaching out to others in his name and for his sake. Worship is a service we render to God. And from these and many biblical examples of worship, we find that worship could be described in a number of ways. And that's what I'm going to do for you now. And I'll keep an eye on the time. Let me suggest, first of all, that, that worship is the overflowing of the heart. It's the overflowing of the heart. Indeed, that's how the psalmist expresses his worship to God. In Psalm number 45 and in the first verse, we hear him say, my heart is overflowing with a good theme. And he tells us what that theme is. He says, I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue, he says, is the pen of a ready writer. And so we see worship as the overflow from the heart coming even through the mouth, expression being made to our worship. Yes, we can worship God quietly. We can worship God silently. We can worship God privately. We can worship God without saying a word. We can worship God without moving a muscle. But here is one aspect of worship that the psalmist presents us with, and it's this, that worship is the overflowing of the heart, a grateful heart, a heart that is dwelling, as the psalmist says, on the king. He says, I recite my composition. I'm, I'm reciting verses. I, I'm, I'm, as I go along, I, I'm singing, as it were, a song, or I'm writing a poem to the king, as my tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Now, these days we're all used to keyboards, but a, a pen is the old-fashioned keyboard, if you like. And, and here is the, the, the psalmist likening himself to an inspired writer. Sometimes when we are asked to write something, even if it's on the keyboard, we have to think long and hard about it, and I suppose it's as well that we should, because it's not so easy to correct once you've sent it out there. But the picture here is of a writer who has full inspiration, a writer here who is motivated, a writer here who, who is, if I may use again the analogy of the pen on paper, he's, he's writing so fast that the friction's almost setting fire to the parchment. And isn't that how it ought to be when it comes to worshiping the king? We should not be short of material. We should not be short of items for which to thank him, for which to praise him, for which to magnify his name. Worship is the overflowing of the heart, the heart that is dwelling on, that is meditating on the Lord and on all 
His goodness. My heart, he says, is overflowing with a good theme. What better theme than the King, the King of kings, King Jesus, your King and my King? How can we fail to praise Him? His thoughts are on the Lord, and He dwells on this theme. And as He dwells on this theme, worship erupts from His heart like lava from a volcano. And he says, my heart is overflowing with a good theme. And the overflowing there literally means bubbling up, bubbling up. As he thinks about the king, as he thinks about the Lord, as he thinks about his God, as he meditates upon his Savior, his Lord, it, worship begins to literally spring up, to, to bubble up, to boil up within him until it reaches the overflow point, and he finds himself vocalizing his worship. This describes the, the spontaneity of worship, the overflowing of the heart. Let me suggest another thing, and it's very similar. Worship is the outpouring of the heart. It's the overflowing of the heart, and it's the outpouring of the heart. And it's similar, as I've said, to what we've just discussed in the overflowing of the heart, which we, which we likened to, to spontaneity, to those spontaneous moments when we burst in praise. But the outpouring of the heart is perhaps more suggestive of selection rather than spontaneity. That is to say, that we must deliberately give ourselves to worship and gratitude of God by selecting blessings from which to worship and for which to worship uh, and to praise our God. That is to say, don't always wait for the bubbling up. Don't always wait for the bubbling up, because it'll come sometimes, and other times it won't. And whether it comes or whether it doesn't, we have to worship God. And we worship God by the outpouring of the heart, where we begin to select matters for which we will give God thanks. Just as when the, the harvest came, the, the Jewish worshiper went out into the harvest and he collected the first fruits. He selected the best of the crop, and this was given to God in his sanctuary. So too, we need to look deep into our hearts. We, we need to rake our memories back over a day, back over a week, back over a month, back over a year, back over our lifetime, and select that for which we will Praise God. You have another example of that in the Psalms, of course. Psalm 103, where, where David says, I will bless the Lord. Because why? Well, he has, he has saved me. He's my healer. He's my strengthener. He renews me day by day. Bless the Lord, O my soul, he says, and forget not all his benefits. Rake up the memory 
and from that memory select the things that God has done for you and begin to praise God with the outpouring of the heart and soon to the overflowing will take place. We don't have to wait for the bubbling up, but we begin immediately to praise God for all his benefits. How good it would be if every Sunday morning when we have the opportunity to worship God, for example, we came to church prepared. We came to the Lord's house with, with something in our mind and on our heart for which to deliberately praise God. Something He's done for us during the week. Yes, thank Him for your salvation, whether that occurred a short time ago or a long time ago. Thank Him for other blessings that He's bestowed upon your life. But just look back through the past week since you last sat at the Lord's table, since you last engaged corporately with the church in prayer, and select something from that past week for which to thank God. Thank you, Lord, that you were with me on Wednesday when I went for that test to the hospital, for example. Thank you, Lord, that you were with me when I was in the car and came very near to having an accident. Thank you, Lord, for your deliverance. Thank you, Lord, even for the, the simple, everyday things in life. Thank him that there's, and in these days, we need to be more and more grateful for it. Thank him that there's food on our table, that there's heat in our homes, that there's a roof over our heads. So worship is the overflowing of the heart. And worship is the outpouring of the heart. We may have touched on it a little already, but thirdly, let me say worship is the occupation of the heart. Worship is the occupation of the heart. This again, just to underline that we are born to worship. We are made, we are created to be worshipers of God. And worship is the, the business, the occupation, and ought to be at all times of the believer's heart. And the goal of worship, the goal of worship is to touch the heart of God. Not merely that our worship be superficial, not merely that it touch others around us, though thank God for that when it happens, but that we might touch the very heart of God. And as we stressed a little earlier, worship must go deep. It must go deeper than beyond our needs. Worship may involve prayer, but worship is not prayer. In prayer, we are occupied with our needs. And worship, indeed, involves singing and involves expressions of, of worship, but it must even go beyond that because, again, praise is not necessarily worship. In prayer, we are occupied with our, with our needs. In praise, we are occupied with our blessings. But true worship, God is spirit, and they who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. True worship is 
being occupied with God Himself. Yes, prayer is an element. Praise is an element. Singing and so on, these are all elements. But unless we touch God's heart, we have failed to worship. Unless we are occupied by God Himself, Of course, we all like to get everything right. We like our T's crossed and our I's crossed. But unless we aim not only for perfection in what we do, but unless we aim to touch God, we may achieve human perfection, but we have failed to worship. Worship is being occupied by God Himself. That's worship at its purest. It is the heart-to-heart encounter with God. It is the returning of the life and love that flows from the heart of God to our hearts. Worship, then, is a heart-to-heart, a spirit-to-spirit encounter with God. And then may I say this, that that worship is the obedience of the heart. It's the occupation of the heart, and it's the obedience of the heart. Worship is the response of the obedient heart. The first four of the Ten Commandments, which are largely disregarded in society today, of course, but the first four of the Ten Commandments are all about worshiping God, all about worshiping God, about keeping His name pure, about not offering worship to idols, about worshiping the Lord God only. All these commandments point us again to the fact that worship must be reserved only for Him. And show us that God expects and justifiably expects the first place in all of our lives. Before those manward commandments come the Godward commandments. And you see it too in the feasts that were ordained in Israel and the the sacrifices and All of these likewise were about the worship of God. And that was how they were seen. And that was how they were described and observed in Israel. Although again the worship there so often became polluted and warped. In the scriptures generally, worship is a call from God. The call to worship a call to the redeemed heart from the heart of the Redeemer. And we see it so clearly here in Jesus' words to the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. He shows how God is calling us to worship Him, not in a legalistic way, as in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, under the law. We are not called to worship God because the law says we must worship God. We are called 
to worship God, not in a legalistic way, but in a liberated way. Because we have been freed from that law. As the old hymn says, O happy condition, Jesus hath bled, and there is remission. Cursed by the law and bruised by the fall, Christ has redeemed us once for all. We're to worship God in a liberated way because by grace we may. By grace we may. We are called to worship the Father and the Son in the power of the Holy Spirit. Worship is the obedience of the heart. If you've been counting up, that was number four. But we're not doing too badly, are we? Here comes number five. This one will take about an hour. Is that all right? Worship is the offering of the heart. The offering of the heart. Worship is about giving to God. Worship is not about me being blessed. Worship is not about me being blessed. Worship is not about me receiving from the Lord. Worship is not about making me feel good. Worship is about giving. It's about giving to God. It's about giving glory to God, the glory that is due to his name. And if I am blessed in the process, if I receive from the Lord during that process, if I feel good during and after that process, praise the Lord. That's a byproduct. But firstly and foremostly, primarily, preeminently, worship is about my giving to God. When you think about it, what else can we give to God that He hasn't already given us? Think about that. We can give Him our money during the offering, but that's because He's already given that to us. We can give Him our time, but He's given us time. We can give Him our talents, but where do those talents originate? They are from from God. So when we do those things, yes, we're giving, but we're only giving back what we've already got. Worship is the only thing we can give to God that we haven't already received from Him. So worship is the offering of the heart. Abraham regarded the offering of his son Isaac as an act of worship. If you go back into Genesis chapter 22, where the Lord called upon Abraham to take his son Isaac, upon whom all the promises of seed and upon whom all the promises of a great nation centered, to take him and offer him as a, a slain sacrifice there on the mountains of Moriah. And when they reached the bottom 
of the designated mount, Abraham said to his servant, Genesis 22 and verse 5, Abraham said to his servant, you stay here with, with the donkey. I and the lad will go yonder to do what? To worship. To worship. And in the Greek Old Testament, it's that word that Jesus uses here in John chapter 4, proskuneo, proskuneo. I and the lad will go yonder to worship. Abraham saw even the offering of his own son as worship. Now, he had great faith, as we read in Hebrews chapter 11, that even if he did slide... Even if he did eventually uh, uh, slay his son, that God was able to raise him up to life again. But he was prepared nevertheless to make that sacrifice, and he called it worship. He equated worship with offering, with sacrifice, with cost. And you and I are required to make that sacrifice, not a slain sacrifice. He doesn't call upon us to slay anyone or anything or ourselves. He's not calling for a a slain sacrifice, but from you and me, he calls for a living sacrifice, a living sacrifice. Romans 12 and 1 I beseech you by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. The equation, again, between worship and sacrifice. We're required to offer sacrifices of praise. That is to praise God even when we feel least like doing it, the fruit of our lips, Hebrews 13 and verse 15. Worship is seen to be something required from each of us. We cannot leave others to do our worshiping for us. It's the offering of your heart and my heart. Now we come to number six. That hour went in quickly, didn't it? I think maybe at most did it take 10 minutes? So that means I have 50 minutes plus another hour for the next title. All these folks taking copious notes, which is really, really lovely. And I'll be very, very quick. My eye is on the clock. Worship is the outreaching of the heart. The outreaching of the heart. And that really is the summary of all that we've been reflecting on about worship so far. Worship is my heart, your heart, reaching out to the heart of God. Worship is my human spirit outreaching to the Holy Spirit. Worship is about earth reaching out to heaven. 
Worship is about me reaching out from where I am presently in my relationship with God to where I want to be with Him. And surely we want to be in a deeper place, a closer place with Him. Worship should lead us also to reach out to others, to reach out to others in fellowship, to reach out to others in evangelism. Worship that is real, worship that is true, worship that is in spirit does not exist in a vacuum. It leads us somewhere. We read in Acts chapter 13 about the church at Antioch as they were ministering to the Lord, a phrase that means as they were worshiping the Lord. The Holy Spirit broke into their worship and called on the church to release Saul and Barnabas, Barnabas and Saul, for the work we're on to, I have called them, and the work of world evangelism began in a worship meeting, reaching out from the worship meeting to the world. Our worship must lead us somewhere. In worship, let's listen for the voice of God, let's affirm one another, and let's reach out to one another and to others who need likewise to discover that they were born to be worshipers. Amen. May the Lord bless his word then to every heart.